You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm your host, Mike Brazier, and I'm joined here in studio with my co-host, Chris Jennings. Chris, how are you? Doing well, doing well. This is another one of our species profiles, and I guarantee you it's going to be a popular one. We are going to be talking about greater white-fronted geese, and we have joining us one of North America's leading experts on this species, Dr. Jay Von Bank. Jay, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It took us a while to get this one scheduled, but we finally did it, and so we're going to get right into this as we, we start talking about it. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to to tell our listeners about yourself, where you came from, where you're, what you're doing right now, and what your prior experience and research with this particular species has been. Sure. Well, I'm a research ecologist at uh, Northern Prairie Wildlife Research Center uh, with the United States Geological Survey in Jamestown, North Dakota. And I am a um, primarily waterfowl ecologist, and I work mostly with my uh, movements of waterfowl um, throughout the country, spanning from uh, white front geese to model ducks, pintails, um, lots of movement ecology experience. And I got started with white front geese. Um, I think it must have been fall of 2015. I accepted a PhD down in Texas um, working on movement ecology of white front geese. 
and uh, have been working on them ever since. Um, the PhD started with uh, kind of full annual cycle uh, research using tra tracking devices, looking at uh, fall movements, winter movements, spring migration, breeding um, information in the Arctic and subarctic. And uh, it's grown and grown over the last, oh, was that seven years, eight years now? Uh, we have a huge, uh, amazing research team of, of research scientists, university, federal, state agencies, um, NGO involvement, and uh, and just lots of folks on a, on a really great team um, learning more and more about white fronts every year. Jay, I want to also learn a little bit about your personal background. You and I intersected briefly there on the Gulf Coast. I was still with the joint venture, and you were starting some of your research there at A&M, A&M Kingsville. But I don't, I don't think we ever had a whole lot of time to just kind of sit down and get to know one another. What about your, where are you from originally, and what was childhood like for Jay? Sure. Uh, I grew up in, in South Central Minnesota. I, you know, I didn't really grow up in a hunting family. My dad hunted a bit. Um, deer hunted kind of the classic Minnesota Orange Army opening weekend, go to deer camp and hang out. But he really wasn't a, a hunter. Um, and I kind of got interested in it on my own from magazines and and um, and things like that. And my dad was gracious enough to, to kind of <laughs> invest in, in me trying to figure out how to goose hunt. So he came along and just kind of sat there while I tried stuff and figured it out and blew a goose call like a duck call and used my, my 12 shell decoys and uh, and learned to hunt kind of together me and my dad did and Canada geese mostly and, and a few ducks here and there but uh, then I found some friends went to college really kind of got involved um, I got involved in in competition duck calling uh, for quite a while and and traveled the country uh, central flyway states or Mississippi flyway states mostly uh, competing in events until I went to college and and uh, got a little too busy with with the university to uh, keep that going so um, yeah then it went to Bemidji State in northern Minnesota for my undergraduate, I did a master's at Western Illinois University uh, with Forbes Biological Station there in central Illinois, um, and then moved to uh, Texas for my PhD. Uh, following that, did a brief stint in Missouri with a post for a postdoc, and then moved up to North Dakota. So it's been a it's been kind of a wild ride. Yeah, that's quite the travels. So good for you, and and you probably did not get much inter interaction with white fronts growing up. Then I think you said it was mostly Canada's. Yeah, almost none, almost none. I, I do, I decoyed one um, in early season Minnesota and, oh gosh, would have been 2010 or something. And it was, just, it was mind blowing, you know, made my season just seeing one uh, in, in Northern Minnesota. And, and uh, they've always been my favorite goose, uh, probably because I had very little interaction with them. And so when that, when that PhD popped up, opportunity popped up, uh, it was a, a really kind of a dream project for me. And, and it's been a, it's been fun ever since. Appreciate all that, Jay. Chris, uh, I wanted, you know, typically when we do these species profiles, it's either just the two of us mm -hmm. or it's me. And and I guess I've had one where I ha had another guest come in and you weren't able to be part of that one. But I insisted on you being part of this episode because white fronts are a species that you and a lot of your hunting hunting partners have have become pretty fond of. Uh, so, and, and that relates to one of the big things that we're going to talk about uh, with regard to changes in their distribution mm -hmm. and abundance. Y'all have seen that in Arkansas, right? Absolutely. And I've talked on the show many times here just about my infatuation with the white fronts and how, kind of like you mentioned, Jay, growing up, in, I grew up in Indiana hunting. And so we hunted Canada's, you know, some ducks here and there, but it was pretty much Canada's. And I didn't even see a white front until I moved down here. 
and then started hunting over in Arkansas and in some in Mississippi. And, uh, it was just, I was just like fast. I think, I think I was fascinated, fascinated with those birds more because they responded like Canada's to the call when I'm out there, like you could blow a call at 10,000 snow geese all day long and, you know, they're never going to respond. But when you, you know, get the calls right and the decoys right with, with white fronts, they'll respond. And they respond a lot like Canada's, even sometimes more aggressive to the decoys. Um, and then, like you mentioned, that transition to where now I hunt in Arkansas, me and a couple of my buddies, we have a little house. And we've basically gone from a duck club to a goose club because we primarily hunt white fronts and and all the guys there i mean we're we're good with that and that's that's fun i mean that's what i like i know some guys love you know ducks and but i'm very passionate about geese and and snow geese too but that's a totally different conversation but i will say jay i just wanted to mention you might be only person that i've met that had that has like a phd in waterfowl ecology and has been on stage for competition duck calling. So would you <laughs> would you say that you're probably the best duck caller of all the PhDs that that you work with? Oh, I don't know. I don't know about <laughs> that. It's been a long time since I've been on the stage, but uh, no, that was a fun time in my life, and I think it I think it really uh, spiked a lot of my interest in um, in waterfowl at a broader scale, like traveling to different parts of the country and going to Stuttgart, Arkansas, and and I blew in the intermediate world there a long time ago, mm-hmm. and and but driving through Arkansas and seeing the the flocks of snow geese and white fronts, and and going to Kansas and seeing the, you know what's over there, and so I think that really kind of piqued a lot of my interest in waterfowl and learning more about water. Fell. Did you win any of those competitions? I have to ask. I won a, I won a few when I was an intermediate uh, level and then stepped up with the big boys and got my butt kicked for a few <laughs> years and finally turned it in. So not nothing nothing impressive. And, <laughs> and haven't been tempted to get into the goose calling given your research on that on that species. No, no, I've I've seen videos of the of uh, of the world white front calling championships, and those guys are unbelievably good. Well, I know I, I've only judged one duck calling contest, so tip of the hat to you. And the one only because the one contest that I did judge, the other judges who are experienced, they told me they're like, you started a seventy, and I'm like, you started seventy out of a hundred, and they're like, yeah, it's seventy to just walk out on that stage because it's <laughs> so much pressure. And then, and then once I actually judged it and I saw it and I was in it, you know, involved in it, I was like, oh yeah, that that may be 80 just to walk out on stage. That's a lot <laughs> of pressure before you even get started. So tip of the hat to you for that. Jay, thanks for sharing with us some of your background there. We'll go ahead and get into the conversation here about this really interesting species that has, uh, that it's become, it's gotten on the radar of many more hunters here over the past 10 or so years. And so uh, a lot of interesting things to discuss on this. And so why don't we just start out uh, with the, you know, it's greater white-fronted goose. Tell us some of the more unique things about this goose species relative to all the others, even kind of taking a worldwide perspective. I know there's a few features about this species that are pretty unique among the goose family. Greater white-fronted geese, um, I'll just start at the to- at the, the top of the world, I guess, have, have a circumpolar distribution or near circumpolar, which means that they actually breed um, all around the globe in the Arctic and subarctic uh, from Russia uh, to Greenland to North America. You know, there are some areas that don't have breeding birds, but in a general sense, they breed all around the globe. And so um, there's a bunch of different populations and, and uh, at least four different subspecies, um, much like a lot of taxonomic um, information that it gets a little fuzzy, but uh, generally there are four uh, kind of subspecies. So we have what's called the Pacific white-fronted goose, 
um, which is Anser albifrons frontalis. And that is, uh, in North America, forms two populations. It forms the Pacific population, which is a little bit confusing because the subspecies is Pacific white-fronted goose. But they have the Pacific birds, which are down the uh, Pacific flyway. And then we have the, the mid-continent birds. So it's a Pacific subspecies of mid-continent birds. There's another one in, in North America, the uh, tule goose, the tule white-fronted goose. And that bird... Uh, is only on the on the Pacific Flyway, and it is, I think, the the rarest subspecies of goose on Earth. There's very few of them uh, total, uh, but they they breed kind of in the Cook Inlet, Alaska area, and then migrate down the West Coast, Summer Lake uh, area, and then winter in California as well. Right along with uh, the Pacific population of white-fronted geese. And then just. Just for reference, there's two other subspecies, I think, um, worldwide. Just mention those, and that'll be the last time that we talk about them. Sure. Yep. There's the Greenland white-fronted goose. Um, those birds breed in Greenland. They stage in, in during migration in Iceland and then uh, jump across down to the British Isles and in um, Ireland and uh, Scotland. I had the, the pleasure of going over there and helping with some research in 2017, I believe. Um, beautiful country. The goose is, is uh, quite a bit darker than our, our mid-continent white-fronted goose. They're almost a chocolate. They're a really pretty bird. Um, and then there's the, the Eurasian uh, white-fronted goose, the answer albifrons, albifrons. Um, and those birds breed all across northern Russia um, and winter in, in Western Europe and in Japan and in China. And so uh, they have a really broad distribution as well during winter. And so I think for the majority of the conversation that we're going to have here today, we'll be talking about the Pacific subspecies, the Pacific white-fronted goose. And within that, we'll have two populations that we're talking about, the Pacific population and then the mid-continent population. I don't think we'll get into a whole lot of discussion about the Thule white front. It's pretty pretty unique uh, situation around it. But uh, for the most part, just Pacific population and mid-continent. Does that sound about right? Yes, sir. Yep. And I think that's, you know, Pacific population, mid-continent population is the easiest way to address kind of those two. All right, and you've talked about some of the taxonomic names. We don't have to get into a lot of uh, a lot of that. But in terms of its closest relatives, um, is there any any other goose species that it's closely related to? Um, I mean, probably how closely related is it to uh, to snow geese? And then, kind of outside of that, are there others worldwide where it would uh, be a closer relative? Sure. Yeah, quite a bit further from snow geese. The the closest route. There's no, nothing very close in North America. Um, the uh, the closest would be uh, the lesser white-fronted goose, which we don't have in North America. Also, uh, not um, doing very well at a population level uh, worldwide. But the lesser white-fronted goose, and then what we kind of call the gray goose complex. So you have bean geese, um, taiga and tundra bean geese, and then the pink-footed goose, and then. Um, the gray leg goose, swan and gray leg goose, and those are all um, European and Asian birds. And there's some similarity in appearance between that group and and the white fronts. That's that would kind of make sense. Yep, yep. So that's we kind of call it the gray goose group. Um, you know, you have the white white geese, which are snow geese and and Ross's geese, and then you have the white cheeked geese, which are all of the variations and subspecies of Canada geese um, and barnacle geese and those kind of things. And so this one is kind of all the brown geese, uh, gray geese of the world. You know, one of the things that we like to do here is give a introduction to the appearance. Most of the people that will listen to this episode will know what a greater white-fronted goose is. Uh, but for those that may want a you know proper definition, they'd probably recognize it if they saw it. But how do you describe it to people, Jay, given all the work that you've done on it? 
Sure. Yeah, they're so they're kind of a medium brown goose species, brown plumage. Um, they have kind of a pink beak, pink yellowish beak, and then and then the the classic uh, the telltale sign of the white fronted goose is the is the barring on the belly. So they have a kind of a lighter colored belly, and then it'll have black or brown um, splotches across the belly. And uh, and one of my favorite other distinguishing characteristics is the big orange feet. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the white fronted goose, you know, you can look across the field and just see orange and orange and black and white and the belly all across the field. So that's for the adults. The the juveniles don't have the barring. Um, the cl- I should mention also for the adults, the the name Alba Franz uh, is, means white front in, in Latin. So Alba means white, Franz is front. And that's uh, due to the ring of white around the beak, kind of on the forehead of the bird. Um and so the juveniles don't have that either. They don't have the black barring and they don't have the white front. Uh, First-year birds or hatch-year birds, uh, which are born in the spring, will start to get that white front through the winter. Um, and about March, they'll have that almost complete. And they'll, they'll even start to get a little bit of barring very, very late winter, early spring. Um, but for the most part, they have kind of a pale belly, no blotches, kind of lightish brown. Uh, and the adults are the ones that have the barring. Jay, there's a lot of variation in the amount of barring on the belly of these birds. There's variation within uh, among males. There's variation among females. When someone, I, I suspect it happens a lot when a hunter harvests one of these birds and they see it has a lot of black, they will, might be tempted to say it's an older bird or might draw want to draw some conclusion about male or female. What do we know in terms of the reliability of being able to do that, either with males, females, or the age of the bird? Sure. Well, you can certainly do it with juveniles to adults, right? They're no barring versus barring. But once the bird becomes an adult or at least a sub-adult, say two years old, their barring pattern is their barring pattern. And it doesn't get older with, it doesn't get darker with age. Um, It might change a little bit year to year in terms of pattern, but not really in terms of coverage. So, um, you know, but it's not quite as unique as a fingerprint, say, right? So it's not perfect every year. It changes a little bit, but um, it doesn't change overall, like the older they get, the darker they get. That's a good fact. I think a lot of people, hunters especially, you know, they're like, oh, that bird was really barred up. That's an old bird. Well, that's good for people to know that that could be a two-year-old bird. It just has that unique bar pattern. That's for sure. That's interesting. And and so the other thing is is uh, there's been a few studies on this, but males and females typically don't have any differences. However, some anecdotal stuff and uh, a couple of other researchers as well, males sometimes have have more coverage of blotching than females do. Now, that's not a hard and fast rule. I've seen females that are completely black, and I've seen males that are completely black, and I've seen males with very little barring. But generally, I'd say uh, a a male typically has a little bit more coverage um, than a female. One last thing about it is is the color of the barring can change uh, throughout the year. So it starts out a little bit lighter, more brown, and then as the winter progresses, it'll actually get darker, um, and that's just due to feather wear and and uh, those kind of things through the winter time. It'll actually be a little bit more black later in the year. As earlier in the year, it can be a little bit more brown. And then anything about size of the birds relative to to snow geese? I know they're going to be bigger than Ross's geese, but where are they relative to the size of, of let's say, snow geese? Sure, just a, just a touch smaller. Uh, they're, they're four and a half to five and a half, sometimes six pounds in a big male. Um, but just slightly, slight, you know, almost even to slightly smaller with snow geese. Chris, you've hunted a lot of these, you've killed a lot of these. 
any appearance things that you wanted you need want to ask Jay about that that you may have wondered about or that y'all talk about whenever you get a, a bird that looks a little different in hand? No, I mean, I think you hit it right there with the barring. I think that's the big thing that maybe it sounds like a lot of hunters have some misinformation there that you just cleared up. Um, also, the feet is a good indicator as far as juvenile to adult. That's, that's a pretty easy one. Um, I think most people... Um, can make that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think as far as appearance goes, I mean, they're, they're pretty hard to confuse with a snow goose, uh, maybe some really, <laughs> really young birds, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, and even a Canada, I mean, if you look out in a field and there's a flock of Canada's and there's one white front sitting out there, you know, which one that one is. I mean, it's, it kind of sticks out. So, uh, appearance, I think we're good. I, I did want to ask Chris from your observations in the field and maybe Jay yours as well, in terms of sort of segregation of white front flocks of white fronts from snow geese, what do you, Chris, what do you typically observe? And then I'll get, get Jay to kind of offer some thoughts. Yeah, I think, and I think this could be different for different regions and areas. And so but what I'm seeing is basically what I'm looking at out of my, my pit blind, but typically early, we all we see a lot of white fronts are feeding, flying everything with the snows, and I think that's upon arrival. Then maybe they're just following the snows, or the snows are following them, one or the other. But as the season progresses, those species separate entirely. So by late January in Arkansas, you know those uh, the specks will land off to the edge of a flock of snows, um, but they're not intermingling <laughs> at all. By the and I don't know that's just something that happens at our place, maybe, or is that something that's fairly common? No, that's that's uh, that's pretty standard. I think you know we see white fronts show up like say Arkansas and Louisiana, uh, maybe two weeks earlier than a lot of snow geese. So they're, they're obviously on their own. Then the snow starts to show up and fill in and we, we see really mixed flocks for, mm -hmm. for a long time. And then, yeah, maybe January or so we start to see white fronts kind of pull out of, of those big snow goose flocks. And exactly like you said, kind of sit on the edges of those, of those flocks. Um, and even through migration, you know, uh, if you're a snow goose hunter, you know that you can you can decoy a flock of white fronted geese in the springtime that that don't have any snows with them, and and a lot of times those big spins of snow geese that come in, you don't have any white fronts in those either, and mm -hmm. so we do see a bit of segregation going on there, um, kind of starting in the springtime. Jay, before we move on to talk about some of the breeding and wintering distribution, the one the other thing we like to do here on the appearance side of things is to play. Uh, audio track for what it sounds like uh, for for the calls for this bird. So I've got something. I think I've piped in here with my phone. We'll see if this works. Classic flock of white fronts. Everybody likes that sound. And here's the track where we try to isolate some of those birds to get more of that individual sound. Yeah, that's a lovely sound. Two or three note sort of yelp, and you can hear the individual bird there. And that up or down, or that, that multi-note kind of distinguishes white fronts from, from snow geese often. And so then here's another call. It's sort of a squeal that, that I've actually heard a lot of people try to emulate in their calls, in their calling. Uh, it's, it's just sort of a squeal, and it trails off there at the end, so... So it's kind of neat to isolate those. You hear the difference. And then, of course, we heard the, the flock at the beginning where it's just this big cacophony of, of these yelps and squeals. And so, yeah, it, it's a great sound. 
But is there anything else sort of noteworthy, Chris, calls that you've heard that... No, but just hearing that noise, it's just, it's perfect timing. We're actually recording (laughs) this on October 13th, and we had white fronts over the house here in Memphis last night. So that was the first time of the... And and typically, and you could actually was, I had Case in short on last week, and we sat here and we're talking about it because he had some showing up September 22nd. He posted, I think, on Instagram saying, hey, we've got specs on the farm. Um, and so we were talking about that time frame, and it is almost ever since I've lived here, it's like October 10th through like the 18th or 20th, like that 10 days right there is when I've always, and now this is just me in my backyard in the metro area of Memphis. So I'm sure they're showing up way earlier other places, but I mean, I can sit out on my deck and hear white fronts on some of the, and this, it's all in conjunction of these big fronts. And, and, but it, it, that's like the first time for fall for me now, ever since I've lived here for 15 years, it's still 85 degrees sometimes. So it doesn't really feel like fall that I'm used to, but when you can hear those white fronts overhead, like for me, that's like, uh Oh, here we go. You know, I better better start cleaning out the garage. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that, some of their migration chronology uh, here a little bit later on. Jay, let's talk about breeding distribution. Uh, where do these two populations, remember we're talking about a mid-continent and a Pacific population, where do these, these groups of birds breed? Sure. I'll, I'll start with the Pacific population. Um, the Pacific population really breeds in two areas uh, in Alaska, the Bristol Bay Lowlands in kind of South Central Alaska, and then the, the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta or the YK Delta on the west side. Um, YK Delta is a huge area, and, and the Pacific population really breeds in, in those two areas only. There's a small portion of that that'll breed getting into what we call interior Alaska or the taiga uh, breeding population. And these birds actually breed um, in the interior Alaska along the rivers and, and lakes in the forest, um, spruce forest, tamarack forest. And, and there's a small, small area where um, both mid-continent white fronts and Pacific white fronts will breed uh, in the same area. Now, other than that, these two populations are, I should mention this earlier, these two populations are almost entirely separate. Um, there's like I think it's 0.1% of all band recoveries have ever switched flyways. So a bird that was banded in the Pacific flyway recovered in the mid-continent and vice versa. So these are these are almost separate, almost entirely separate populations, except for this tiny little area in, in interior Alaska. But that's where the Pacific population uh, birds breed. The mid-continent population is a, a much, much, much vaster area of breeding. Um, white fronts are, I should mention, are solitary breeders, so they don't breed in colonies like white, uh, like white geese do. So they're solitary breeders. They breed on their own, and they take up a huge area. So uh, mid-continent birds will breed from interior Alaska. Uh, those are what we call, again, taiga breeding birds. And then that'll extend northward and westward from the west coast of Alaska all the way across the north slope of Alaska, across uh, Arctic Canada, all the way to the western coast of the Hudson Bay. And into the Arctic Islands, um, and even down into uh, down the coast of the of the Hudson Bay, just a little bit, but pretty much the entire Canadian Arctic and uh, North Slope of Alaska is is breeding range for mid-continent white-fronted geese. Jay, anything else of note on, on on kind of breeding distribution? It hasn't really changed a whole lot since we've been studying them, has it? You know, we, we're seeing some changes in the the number and size of some of those snow goose colonies, but there's nothing as noteworthy for white fronts in that regard, is it? 
Yeah, not not quite. Um, it, it's just a lot harder to study because they are solitary breeders, and so you don't have the opportunity to go and monitor these huge colonies like you do for Snuggie. So it's tougher. Um, I think one thing we've learned uh, more recently with some of the with some of the tracking studies is that um, white fronts will breed um, off of the coast quite a ways. We kind of thought there was a narrow band along um, coastal areas where white fronts kind of stayed and, and we found, you know, white fronts breeding inland quite a ways too. And so, um, that's kind of something interesting still in, in Arctic, subarctic habitat, but, um, off of the coast quite a ways. Now your research in Texas required you to mark birds. I think you did most of that marking on the wintery grounds. Do I remember that right? Yep, that's correct. We we marked um, each winter from 2016 until, well, this winter as well, all, each year, um, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, uh, more recently, Kansas, Oklahoma, um, some other more northern more northern wintering states, but yeah, on the wintering grounds. And those would all would have all gone back to the mid-continent uh, breeding population locations? Correct, yep. Yeah. Uh, have you... Have you done any banding, or I shouldn't say banding, but any marking of birds up on the breeding grounds, either Pacific or mid-continent population? Yeah, not for um, not for the, the movement research we've been doing, but this summer, actually, I did get to go to Cambridge Bay, uh, Perry River uh, banding in the central Canadian Arctic and, and do their uh, kind of annual preseason banding. Um, first time it's occurred since since COVID entered our lives and so it was a, it was a pretty amazing experience to get back up there and uh, and do the kind of preseason leg banding uh, for white fronts out of Perry River there. Jay, I'm keeping an eye on the clock here and I think right now we want to uh, just take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back and we'll pick up with a discussion about the wintering distribution. We have, it's occurring to me that we've got a lot of information yet to cover about this species. There's a, yeah. It's kind of what happens when you have one of the world's experts uh, to talk about it. So hang with us, Jay. We'll be right back after this break. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. 
DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome back, everybody. We are back. I'm here in studio with uh, my co-host, Chris Jennings, and we have Javon Bank, Dr. Javon Bank, on the on the line talking with us about white fronts. Jay, we, we're going to talk about the distribution of this, of this species during winter. That's a time when most people in North America are going to interact with it. It's when they, most people are going it, to... It's uh, the time of the year and the places where people are going to have the most questions, too. So... I'm going to I'm going to ask you I guess will be a number of follow-up questions here but from a distribution standpoint let's start with the Pacific population talk about that well where can these birds be found uh in the winter and migration just kind of talk about that as well Sure yeah those birds migrate um down the Pacific coast um you know some brief staging in in the northern states Washington Oregon um but primary wintering grounds are are the central valley of California um, that's kind of the the mecca for white fronted geese in the in the rice country down there. Um, some of them will go down to Mexico, down towards Baja or Sonora, or move over even towards the kind of the northern interior highlands up there. Some some larger wetlands in Mexico, but for the most part, it'll be it'll be California uh, as a wintering grounds there. And that distribution hasn't changed a whole lot. The, the, that's kind of it's it's one of the more it's one of the most popular areas because it's the best habitat and there's not a lot of other kind of suitable habitat in in those wintering areas. And then the mid-continent population. Tell us about it. And let's just start historically speaking because there's going to be a contemporary aspect of this as well, but historically where do these birds uh, migrate through and and winter? I think we probably know a lot more about their wintering destinations than perhaps any, you know, the w- migration areas that may have changed historically, but uh, let's talk about that. Sure. Yeah, migration's a little bit trickier one, but um, for the most part, you know, they come out of the Arctic, cross the boreal, and uh, and stage in Prairie Canada, and, and typically it's uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta, the prairies there, um, and then you know, say September, late September, early October. Um, right now, today, yeah. <laughs> uh, they they are uh, are pushing from Prairie Canada down to kind of the south central United States. Um, historically, they would have made a few, uh, one primary stop uh, in the rainwater basin of Nebraska. That was uh, both spring and fall. That was a, a major um, migration area, and that's changed a bit too. Um, we could talk about that in spring migration, but uh, historically, these birds would have been going to the Gulf Coast uh, and the coastal marshes of, of Louisiana and Texas. And they were actually in the marshes, not not in the rice prairies as we know them today, because most of those rice prairies uh, weren't as large or accessible as they are now. So they would have made their living in the in the marshes, coastal freshwater marshes and brackish marshes, all winter long, um, feeding on tubers and seed heads. And and um, from there, about 1940s or so, after World War II, and all this machinery became available um, after the war, rice agriculture really expanded. And opened up a lot of a lot of those uh, upland coast prairie uplands uh, to rice agriculture. And about that time, geese, um, snow geese and white fronted geese, shifted from the coastal marsh inland into into rice agriculture. And then it was kind of a similar distribution right along um, what we think of as you know uh, the coastal bend there, uh, all Louisiana, um, coastal Texas down to kind of southern Texas in the rice country. 
And uh, that's where they were really uh, primarily until the 1990s, 2000-ish. Um, we have seen quite a large distribution shift into the uh, northeastward into the Mississippi Alluvial Valley. Um, obviously, rice agriculture is big there now too, in Arkansas, Mississippi, um, a little bit of Missouri, and so we've we've seen a large shift away from the coast into uh, into more inland habitats in in Arkansas, Mississippi, um, and so forth there. And even more recently, say the last five years or so, we've we've continued to see this northward, and now we have white fronts wintering in in Illinois and in Indiana, um, some in Iowa, even Missouri and. Kansas uh, staying there all winter long, and so we're we're continuing to kind of see this dis- redistribution of of white fronted geese on the landscape. Hey Jay, one quick comment there, and I think you and I have discussed this before, but I think when when we discuss or when you're you're talking about wintering distributions and these birds are now in Illinois or Indiana or Kansas, that's not where a lot of these birds are are necessarily staying all winter, and that kind of leads into some of the research that you're doing that I think is awesome, where these birds are bouncing from South Texas to Illinois to Arkansas to, you know, Oklahoma. You know, these birds are moving around. Is Can you kind of speak to that and kind of what you're seeing as this research is unfolding? Yeah, you know, that was one of the questions we had when when we first started this and all of our partners did, all these all the southern states, Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas, and, and researchers all involved in this in this research. Um you know, is there fidelity to the central flyway? Is there fidelity to the Mississippi flyway? Um, and fidelity, you know, meaning do they go there and stay there all winter long? Um, as as some of the older research predicted, geese should do, right? They should have uh, winter fidelity to these areas because they know the areas, they know where they're safe, they know where the food resources are. Um, and I think it must have been one of the first maybe five or so white fronts we got a transmitter on went from South Texas, where I was stationed, uh, up to Louisiana and up to Arkansas. In I think it was November, made the movement backwards, which we were really confused about. And uh, but it wasn't it wasn't an anomaly. You know, we saw birds um, doing this these kind of movements all over the place, east, west, north, south. Last year we had one transmitter in Arkansas that two weeks later went back up to Cheyenne Bottoms in Kansas. We've had the opposite movements where they're from Kansas down to Arkansas, east-west, um, all over the place. And, and they show a really strong knowledge of their of their winter landscape and, and the ability to use it all, which is, is quite amazing. Jay, what do you see like on a year-to-year basis? You have a bird that you described that went from South Texas to uh, Louisiana and then into Arkansas. How many instances is do you have where you, you you saw a bird do that and then you were able to follow it? It was still alive with a functioning transmitter to follow it the, the subsequent year. And what did you see? Any similarity in behaviors, movements from year to year? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, sometimes and sometimes not. Uh, and even even some birds, you know, uh, we, we would catch birds in North Texas and next winter they would winter in Arkansas. And then two winters later, we have some for, for quite a while now, winter back in Texas. And so it, it really, it appears uh, quite variable. And on an individual basis, you know, we, we talk a lot about movements, but some birds don't move much at all, and they'll stay on the same two or three farms. Um, so some birds really show high levels of winter fidelity but they seem to have a very good knowledge of of their winter landscape and are and are able to move around like that. Yeah. I know I've heard Paul Link talk about stories of birds that he has 
captured and banded in one small corner of a field and then a few years later recaptures that same bird in the same small corner of the field. There's anecdotal stories like that. Uh, the question is kind of how widespread it. And that, that, that type of question comes up all often in wildlife management. You have these really unique stories that you can document or behaviors for certain certain birds. But are those the dominant behaviors or, or are those just really unique individuals? And then that begs the question of manage, uh, for managers of, well, which group of birds do you manage around? And typically the answer is going to be uh, you want to make sure you're, you're accommodating all those unique and different behaviors, I would, I would imagine. You, you see some unique observations like that, Jay? Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, Paul's got a bunch of those observations and, and we do too. You know, it, it seems that um, in some years it's a lot of birds and some years, you know, we have less movement. And I think that it has to do with the many things that we think about as, as managers all the time, distribution of resources, uh, weather events, hunting pressure, um, all these kind of things that influence, influence uh, animal distributions. Interestingly, you know, it, We've had birds move on fronts like that, you know, from Arkansas down to Texas on a front, but we've had them do the, uh, the opposite um, with, with seemingly no weather patterns at all. Um, so there, there's lots more going on uh, in terms of drivers of these movements. And we've, you know, we think about these ecoregions that Mississippi Alluvial Valley um, is different than coastal Louisiana, which is different than coastal in South Texas or North Texas or Kansas. And, uh, and we've had birds use five or six regions in one winter, you know, kind of utilizing the whole the whole winter landscape, which is just incredible. Speaking of that change in the the distribution of birds from from South Texas uh, into Louisiana, and certainly now into the into the alluvial valley, I have some data here in front of me. It's midwinter survey data from a series of of states here. And if you look at coastal Texas back from around 1980 through oh, let's say the early 2000s, their midwinter average was somewhere between 100, 150,000, maybe a little bit higher than that in some cases. But starting around the early 2000s, 2005, six, and then certainly 2010, 11, man, their numbers are, are, are sort of bottoming out. And that 11, 12 number is really interesting to me because, Jay, I don't know if you were there at the time, but that was when there was a pretty significant curtailment of irrigation water for rice production on the mid-coast. And I think in one single year, it led to the um, the loss. You know, uh, the producers did not plant about 60,000 acres, 50 to 60,000 acres that they normally do. And so that, that rice landscape, planted rice landscape along the Gulf Coast, te- especially Texas, had been shrinking for a number of years. And you, know, you kind of wonder if that was sort of a tipping point for some of those birds to say, this is not a good landscape for us right now. And then maybe they moved and then kind of wondering about a memory type thing if, and if maybe those birds just never went back. Any, any thoughts on that, Jay? Feel free to speculate. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I, I, I think that was a major concern, and and uh, it's probably the primary reason that Texas Parks and Wildlife funded my funded my research project is is they were wondering what's going on on the Gulf Coast, you know, and, and are these birds going to come back? And I think after that at uh, eleven drought um, and change in water distribution, you know, when the rice comes back, are the geese going to come back? kind of a questions and and uh they really didn't and you know once you see and this happens in a lot of bird populations once you see a northward shift in distribution um rarely does it come all the way back south again and and uh, rice you know has 
been relatively low, but in some years there have been they've been you know depending on the rotation have been bigger years in Texas, and you really don't see a, a bump in white fronted geese um, on the coast again. Now, you know Texas still has a whole bunch of geese in the, in the North Texas, a whole bunch of white fronted geese in North Texas, um, and but that's an entirely different landscape. It's it's large playas uh, that are filled with water in some years and completely dry in other years. It's peanut farming and and sorghum. And uh, winter wheat, and that's what they're there for. And it's just a, it's a, it's, it's a change for Texans, uh, I'm sure, who, who don't get to hunt them on the coast really as much as they used to. Hey, Jake, one thing about this, and I don't want to get too far off because this does relate to winter distribution. And I think, you know, our average listeners can probably put this into a little better perspective here. But you and I have talked, and, and, one of the things that has changed is the way that these these birds' food habits have changed. Like you mentioned, you know, they originally were going to the coast and they're feeding on tubers and seeds in the marsh. Then they transitioned into the rice fields, which is similar to the marsh. You know, it's water, you know, there, there there's some seeds in there, things like that. But then they've made the jump, like you kind of just alluded to in North Texas, where these birds are in peanut fields. They're in winter wheat fields. These are now green shoot feeding geese, which is, it's really what makes these birds to me so cool because they are so adaptable now. And do you think that's what's leading a lot to this kind of distribution uh, shift in winter is that these birds can go to Indiana where there are 500,000 acres of cornfields as far as you can see and no one's hunting them and they can sit up there for a while. Is that, do you think that's what this is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a it's a testament to their adaptability mm-hmm. and their adaptability to survive. And if we're going to lose habitat in in one location, well, we'll go find it somewhere else and figure out. You know, we saw the same thing with with the expand um, expansion in snow geese and populations. You know, they learned to take care of corn, um, or they learned that they could eat corn and 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 uh, do well in those habitats and and uh, and we saw that population explode as well. And so we've seen, you know. learning about how these birds are learning about their landscape is really amazing. Yeah, Jay, that's a great point because the, the, the shift out of Texas that we talked about there for white fronts is not restricted to just white fronts. We've, we saw it, Texas saw it with uh, snow geese as well, Mm -hmm. white geese as well. And, you know, I spent a lot of time there and I saw and certainly dug into the data on declining rice acreage there on the Texas mid-coast. And you think about the mecca that it once was and all of the hunting pressure that once occurred on the Texas coast around snow geese. Uh, and and I'm sure white fronts were part of that, but it was really the white fr- uh, the snow goose capital of the world as they, they self-proclaimed and deservedly so. And so you have that intense hunting pressure and you have a shrinking habitat base. And then if you look at some of the data that Kevin Cry has summarized over the years, they really saw a drop in those snow goose numbers beginning shortly after the initiation of the conservation order. And so to me, it's a perfect example of, of the way I think about it, of how it's not one single factor that's driving these what these birds are doing from a major shift kind of perspective you had a shrinking habitat base and then you had an in, it, intense pressure already and then an amplification of that intense pressure at a time of year when they previously didn't experience it it's kind of hard to argue that there wasn't I mean, it's correlational 
but correlational in time, but it's kind of argued hard to argue that there wasn't something going on there. And it just kind of makes sense. Those birds, the, the, one, the one, what all bird species share in common is they, they don't want to get shot. They mm-hmm. don't want to die. And so if they have opportunities to explore other landscapes and they, if they find a landscape, may still have a lot of pressure in it, but if it has a much larger habitat base, which Arkansas certainly does from a rice perspective, now they grow over a million acres of rice, that pressure can be much more spread out. Is that kind of uh, resonating, Jay? Yeah, for sure. And you know, I you mentioned we, we said it's not limited to white fronts. It's not even limited to white fronts and snow geese. You know, there used to be there used to be cacklers on the coast um, in, in great numbers as well. And those birds have moved out. And there used to be a lot of uh, giant Canada geese or big Canada geese in in crab orchard, southern Illinois. And those birds mm-hmm. have shifted northward. You know, we're seeing this in, in a lot of species, uh, especially in the geese. And it's due to all those things we talked about, changing land bases, habitat distribution, changing weather due to changing climate and all these kind of interacting factors, hunting pressure, all these things. And so we've been seeing it uh, for a while and in a bunch of species. So from a distribution standpoint during the winter, anything else that we need to talk about here? Um, Jay, I just I wanted you to kind of talk about, you had mentioned to me um, from the feature when I did in March, April issue, our magazine, um, you mentioned a bird a transmitter that you noticed was kind of outside of the normal range. And, and so kind of share that story with, with that one particular goose. I've, I think you know which one it is, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've had a couple of really interesting ones and this particular goose you're talking about, I'm trying to remember its name, uh, its <laughs> alias, BL6, I think it was, Brushland 6. And this bird came from the Brushlands of Texas and migrated northward, made a made a successful northward migration, had a successful fall migration, and went back to Arkansas the next winter. So we were already excited about that, that the bird uh, changed flyways and, and was in a new, a new area. Um, and then I, it kind of went dark for a little while. You know, our transmitters use cellular signals. So um, if they don't have cell service, they, they go dark for a little bit. And once they return to cell service, they, they come back on and give us all the data. And so this transmitter went dark for a little bit. And it popped up in, uh, I believe it was northern Indiana, uh, the first, the next location I got from it. And I thought, well, that's really weird. And then it started uh, giving me a few locations and they just kind of happened to be down a highway. And I thought, oh, for sure, somebody went to Arkansas and harvested it and it's it's going home, no big deal. We'll wait for the phone call or the band recovery information and we'll talk to them. And then it it, uh, it actually got service back and, and kept going and it, it went all the way to West Virginia. I noticed that it wasn't on the interstate anymore. It was moving around like a normal goose going from, from wetland to field, wetland to field and the river. And then, so it, it stayed in West Virginia, I think for about two weeks. And then it kind of slowly started to make its way down the, back down the Ohio river and ended up back in Arkansas, uh, that same winter. So, uh, some pretty amazing movements. And, and that one, you know, uh, seeming for whatever reason, an exploratory movement, maybe it got lost for some reason it picked up and left Arkansas and, and ended up on the East coast. Yeah. That was a, that was a really that's wild yeah yeah you'd you'd love to know what type of what type of uh disturbance that bird experienced in those in those different locations what type of habitat conditions it experienced in those locations you know you've with all the gps technology that folks are now well that we now have with the transmitters as and all the different sensors the accelerometers and so forth we still don't have Jay, and I'm sure you've thought about this, the ability to incorporate some sort of little microphone on those deals <laughs> so that it can actually pick up gunshots and record that on on board. You've thought about that? 
What a dream that would be. Yeah, it, uh, that would be amazing. I don't, I don't think we're quite there yet. You know, they still got to be waterproof and, and all of these other, you know, withstand the elements, but yeah, that would be, that would be ideal. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll get that, get there. And then of course we're able to, to collect a lot more data on shorter frequencies with regard to landscape conditions, water conditions, and then the, the sensors on board temperature and, and altitude. And it's just a whole bunch of really cool stuff. And, uh, we'll probably talk about that at some point in the future. Jay, we're getting pretty close to having enough information to wrap up this first episode. It'll be the first time we've ever had a two-part species profile episode. Love it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> deserving species for it as, uh, as well, I might say. The one thing before we kind of move away from winter and the distributional shifts, we've danced around it. Chris has, has mentioned it briefly, but I want you to speak a little bit specifically to food habits of white fronts during winter. What have, have prior studies documented, both in terms of, uh, you know, whether it has changed over history and then what we know about changes in diet throughout uh, what these birds are eating throughout the winter? Sure. Yeah. So, I, I kind of mentioned it earlier. We kind of talked about it in the change from coastal marsh into, into agricultural habitat. So historically, coastal marsh, they were grubbing, um, which is, you know, tipping up uh, in water and grubbing uh, tubers out of, of native vegetation, uh, wetland vegetation, and eating seeds off of those. And then um, nowadays, it's it's almost purely agriculture. Um, you'll still see some feeding in wetlands and, and tipping up and, and um, those kind of things and feeding on moist soil and, and that uh, those type of habitats where available. But uh, primarily it's driven by agriculture now. And so uh, rice, um, wheat, winter wheat and, and uh, wheat up north, peas in, in Canada, uh, barley in Canada, mid-latitude states, we get a lot of sorghum and corn. Um, some states you have peanuts like we talked about earlier. Um, and, and that pretty much dominates the diet uh, through most of, of the fall. Now, they, they do need to supplement uh, agricultural grains with some some native vegetation or natural vegetation uh, for trace minerals and those kind of things, which agricultural grains aren't uh, very full of. As winter progresses, you kind of start to see a switch to green vegetation. Let's say late December, January, you'll start to see more weed seeds, more uh, winter wheat regrowth of, of um, agricultural plants. And so they're, they're looking really there for, for some increased protein levels before uh, migration, loading up and, and rebuilding some muscles um, while putting some fat on. And so you kind of see about January or so a switch back to, to more green uh, live vegetation. Now, Jay, the one thing that I've, I remember wondering as I, back in the day when I had time to read scientific articles and, 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 and kind of read about that shift in that diet, there's some temptation to say, well, that shift is confounded with a change in the food that's actually available to them. How much do we know now about what's driving it? Is it, is it the change in what food is available or is it the nutritional demands or are you going to give me the, well, it's kind of both? <laughs> what, what, what do we know? Classic scientist answer. It yeah. depends, right? It depends. You know, I think for sure we, we've documented it really well in rice. You know, we know that rice grain depletes or, or um, regrows or sprouts in which changes its nutrition, right, as it, as it regrows. And so it's a little bit of both. We know it declines through winter, and so you do see a switch to, to uh, green vegetation, maybe confounded a little bit. But also uh, in several species even, you kind of see that switch and uh, the difference in changes in body protein and, and body lipids uh, as, they, as they migrate northward. And so um, 
Yeah, you you will get it's it is a little bit of both. Fair enough. That's kind of what I figured, but I just wanted you to give me the latest on our understanding of it. So appreciate that. And this is an excellent place to wrap up because I think we're going to pick up on the uh, part two of this episode, uh, talking about the kind of their northward migration, I think would be a good way to talk about that, to kind of get into some of the breeding ecology, um, kind of follow them chronologically throughout that that annual cycle and what they eat during the fall uh, and winter, certainly in late winter, is important for understanding how they're going to use that once they get up to the breeding ground and investment in nesting, things of that nature. So, Jay, appreciate your time here and ask you to stick around with us and we'll, we'll do a little bit more of this. Sound good? Sure. Thanks a lot. It's been great. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Jay Von Bank. We appreciate his time, expertise on white fronts. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, who does an outstanding job with these episodes. And we thank you for listening, sharing your time with us, and for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.